0: The Old Testament, the picture of the United Monarchy. Is mankind needs a centralized ruler who is righteous, who will run with justice.
1: Welcome to the Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor teacher at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series with part six of An Aerial View of the Old Testament. Read through just a little bit of Israel's history in the Old Testament and you'll see a monarchy of mostly horrible kings compared with those who did right in the sight of the Lord. Today, Tom will look more closely at the books of Samuel and Kings, examining the incredible works of God through men like David and Solomon. Ultimately, as you'll discover, these kings point to the need for a greater king for Israel, one who is perfect, good, righteous, and just. But who is this king, and when will he arrive? Well, you probably know the answer, but keep it all in mind as we join Tom Pennington right now with today's message on the Word Unleashed.
0: In 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, we find out that that descendant, that Messiah rather, will be a descendant of one family in Judah, and that's David's family. And so the funnel continues to narrow, and as we go through the rest of the Old Testament, you'll see that narrow even more until you come to the new testament there is only one conceivable person that the messiah could be it was absolutely clear god promises him a house look at second samuel chapter 7 in verse 8 god begins this covenant with david he says now there are th- thus shall you speak to my servant david Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off your enemies. I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I love that. We see that promise fulfilled, don't we? Everybody knows who David is. Go anywhere almost on the face of the earth, and they've heard of David. He says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them and they will live in their own place and shall not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded the judges to be over my people Israel. I'll give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares that to you that the Lord will make a house for you. There's that expression. He's not talking about a physical house. David wanted to make a house for God. He was talking about a physical place for God's presence to manifest itself. God takes that and uses the word differently. And he says, you wanted to make a house for me? I'm going to make a house for you. I'm going to make a dynasty out of you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. He will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. There's Solomon and he will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. I'll discipline him, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Now watch this verse 16 and 17. Your dynasty and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. If we had the time, I'd take you to Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, Luke tells us that this promise was fulfilled in none other than Jesus Christ and will be fulfilled in none other than Jesus Christ. So God promises David an eternal dynasty. And of course, that means the rule of his greater son, Jesus Christ. Now, I wish the story ended there, but for our own edification and encouragement it does not. 2nd Samuel chapter 10 through 20 traces David's weaknesses and his failures and their tragic results. There are two chief sins of David that are listed in those chapters. One is the sin with Bathsheba in 2nd Samuel 11 to 12. You know the story, it's obvious that he committed both the sin of murder and the sin of adultery. He repented of those sins, and we have the record of that repentance on the pages of Scripture in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, two of the most magnificent expressions of true contrition and repentance ever written. And then the other sin that's listed is in 2 Samuel 24, and it's the sin of the census, taking the census We cannot be sure what exactly the sin was. But whatever it is, it was clear to the people that lived in that time because even his general urged him not to do it. Possibly it was the sin of pride and ambition. Possibly it was David's way of showing that he was really not dependent on God but on Israel's army. It may be that he intended to take that census and do something with it like put a a heavy tax burden on the people or even conscript them in labor to fulfill some of his dreams. We don't know exactly what it was, but those sins are the ones that are specifically exposed of David. And a major issue through this whole time of David's weaknesses and struggles and failures is his son Absalom's revolt. Absalom saw David's sin. Here are the natural consequences of what he did with Bathsheba, and Absalom tries to seek the kingdom in 2nd Samuel chapter 12 all the way through chapter 19 even putting David as king on the run and then David dies that happens in 1st Kings let's briefly begin our look at 1st and 2nd Kings the author of the book of 1st and 2nd Kings and I say book because it is a single book really it's artificially divided just for the sake of convenience for us But it's one book. The author of it, some believe, was Jeremiah. That's unlikely. It may have been a contemporary of Jeremiah. Or more likely, I think, it was a series of prophetic chronicles composed by a series of court prophets. And they were written and compiled during the exile, during the Babylonian exile. So all of the events that are written there had occurred. They now found themselves in exile. And this book is written so the purpose of 1st and 2nd Kings then was written to remind them of their consistent violation of the Mosaic covenant, to show that the exile was consistent with that covenant, and ultimately of course to urge them and encourage repentance as they were there in exile. And so as you read 1st and 2nd Kings, you will see that point made again and again that God intervenes through the prophets to urge his people to repent to turn back to the covenant that they made with him back at Sinai in Exodus 19. And time and again, they refuse, and God brings judgment. And ultimately, the ultimate judgment, he brings exile when they are exported from the land. So this book then really serves as an apologetic to all the nations as to why Israel is in exile. Remember, we've talked before that in the ancient world, if your army conquered another nation's army, that really meant that your God was stronger than their God. So in that kind of thinking, how was God going to make his reputation clear and protect himself from people thinking that he was somehow weak and that's why his people were defeated? He writes these books through the prophets. He, he establishes prophets who say you're disobeying, you're disobeying, you're breaking the covenant. God is going to take you off into exile. And that serves as an apologetic to them and to others that this is not because of the weakness of Israel's God, it's because of the sin of his people. Now when you look at 1 and Second Samuel I'm sorry, first and second kings in first kings, you have the first 11 chapters, the kingdom is still united under Solomon. In 1st Kings 12 to 22 you have the kingdom divided under many different kings that continues in 2nd Kings. You have the divided monarchy. But in the first 17 chapters you have a picture of that and then it ends with Israel the nor the northern 10 tribes falling and being carried off into captivity. And in chapters 18 to 25 the southern kingdom Judah and Benjamin the kingdom which survives Judah falls and is carried off into Babylonian captivity. So that's a picture of these two books in our Bible. And I want to finish up our discussions with the final figure in the united monarchy when there was one king ruling over all 12 tribes of Israel. You had Saul, you had David, and then you had, naturally, David's son. That's what it means to be a king. Your son succeeds you. Solomon reigned from 931, I'm sorry, 971 to 931 BC, and at his death the kingdom was divided. Solomon's name means peace or peaceable. It comes from that Hebrew word Shalom. You can recognize it even in English. He was the 10th son of David and the second son of Bathsheba. David grew up as a shepherd with nothing. Solomon grew up in the lap of privilege in the palace among the powerful and influential. Let's trace briefly his life. In 1 Kings chapter 1 and running through the middle of chapter 2, we have an attempted coup by Adonijah. And that coup is is overthrown, it's arrested, and from his deathbed then David charges Solomon to loyalty to the covenant. Keep true to God. After David's death, in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 13, and running through the end of the chapter, Solomon consolidates his power by following the orders that his father had given him. In chapter 3, that famous chapter, you come to Solomon offering a thousand burnt offerings to acknowledge his need of God's blessing, and God responds to Solomon with a gracious offer, Ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon, of course, wisely asks for wisdom to rule. God approves that request, and with it, he also says, I'm going to give you riches and honor because you have asked so wisely. Now, when you come to the reign of Solomon, and this is pictured in chapter 4 of 1 Kings, Solomon's reign is presented as the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. In fact, you can see it in verse 20 of chapter 4. It says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. This is the prophet's way of saying in the days of Solomon, the promises made to Abraham were essentially fulfilled. All of those great promises about his people becoming a mighty nation and more than the sand on the seashore As we move through the story of Solomon in chapters 5 through chapter 9, we focus on Solomon's two great building projects, his own palace and the temple. And the temple passage is absolutely a key passage in this book. The temple is completed and something remarkable happens. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. You really have to understand this chapter to understand the rest of Old Testament history. In 1 Kings 8 verses 1 through 9 the ark of God is brought in. As they dedicate the temple, the ark is brought in, left in the Holy of Holies, that's God's throne. And after God's throne is set, there in the Holy of Holies, that cube of a room that no one could enter except the high priest, after that, in verses 10 and 11, the glory cloud fills the temple. Notice in verse 10, it happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So here is this remarkable picture of Solomon completing the temple, and as they prepare to dedicate it, as they bring God's throne into his throne room, His presence, the manifestation of his presence, this blazing cloud of glory takes up residence in Israel's midst. In that context, Solomon offers a brief speech that begins in verse 12 and runs down through verse 21. After that, we read in verse 22, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and he spread out his hands toward heaven. He actually kneels at this point because we find at the end of the prayer, down in verse 54, that when he had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication of the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. So here is the solemn occasion. The glory of God has just taken up residence and Samuel, or excuse me, Solomon kneels before the altar with his hands uplifted and he prays this prayer and a lot of space is given to this prayer it's absolutely crucial both in first Kings and in the flow of Old Testament history now we don't have time to go through it in detail but let me give you the big picture and then we'll look at a specific place most of this prayer is that when the people of Israel sin and find themselves in a variety of difficult trials David or Solomon's prayer is that God will hear their prayers from wherever Their circumstances have taken them and forgive them. And this prayer reaches a kind of crescendo in chapter 8 and verse 46. When they sin against you, this is Solomon praying now to God. When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near... If they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying we have sinned and committed iniquity, we have acted wickedly. If they return to you with all their heart, with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you toward their land which you have given to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name, then hear their prayer. And their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you and make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your inheritance which you have brought forth from Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace." Do this in order that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and to the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you. Why? Because you have separated them from all the peoples of the earth as your inheritance. As you spoke through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers forth from Egypt, O Lord God. Now what's going on here? Remember that this book was written during the exile after God's people had been carried off captive to Babylon, and it was written, for the exiles. And so Solomon is saying, God, if they're carried off to exile because of their sin, and they repent and they cry out to you, hear their cry, forgive them, grant compassion, and restore them. This is a message to those people in Babylonian captivity that the reason they're there is because they sinned against their God. And that if they will repent, as Solomon describes it here, and if they will turn with all of their heart back to God, then God will do just this. He will hear. He will have compassion. And he will forgive. And he will restore. It's an encouragement to these people to cry out to God from Babylon, which is exactly what they did, as we will see. Solomon anticipated this reality and he prays with this in mind and by the way God heard his prayer look at chapter 9 when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to do the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time and the Lord said I have heard your prayer and your supplication which you have made before me that's God's way of saying I will do exactly that I will answer it as you have prayed but God gives Solomon a warning. Look down in verse six. But if you are your sons, indeed turn away from following me and don't keep my commandments and my statutes and go and serve other gods, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name and I will cast out of my sight So Israel will become a proverb and a byword, and this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, why has the Lord done thus to his land and to this house? And they will say, because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. This is an apologetic for what God had done to His people, because this is in fact exactly what happens in the divided monarchy, when God then carries them off captive to Babylon. Israel's exile is due to her sin, but if she will repent, God will hear, forgive, and restore. Just a couple of more things to observe about Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 10 through chapter 10, the end of chapter 10, we have the achievements of Solomon's reign and they're all connected to God's blessing and tied to his faithfulness to God to the covenant with God. You have reference to his building, to the sacrifices he's made, to the merchant fleet that he created, to his wisdom to rule, his riches, his reputation. All of those things were God's blessing on him as a result of his faithfulness to God and ultimately is an expression of God's grace. Solomon's reign was also the golden literary age of Israel. During this time, the histories that we're looking at were written, much music was written, the psalms and the wisdom literature was all written during this golden age of Israel, the age of David and Solomon. Sadly, there came a great decline. You know the story of Solomon's sin. Solomon had started well, but His temptation came through international relations. He made a number of international treaties. That was a good thing in many cases, not in every one. But it was common to seal those allegiances with marriages. But these marriages became more than formalities to Solomon. The foreign women that he married to seal these alliances won his heart and turned his heart to other gods. Notice how far it went. It's described in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 7 and 8. Solomon even built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Solomon remained committed to worship his god but his heart was not wholly devoted to God because he was willing because of his love for these women to build temples in which they could worship and he absolutely defiled the land of Israel. For his sin, we learn the kingdom will be taken away. God promises to remove it from him because of Solomon's unfaithfulness to the covenant. And God showed him grace because God confronts Solomon twice. Look at 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 9. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. Hard-hearted disobedience. So God even raised up men around and surrounding countries and from within to put pressure on Solomon to lead him to repentance. They're listed here in chapter 11, Hadad and Reason and Jeroboam, all to bring Solomon to the place of repentance. Did he? I believe he apparently did repent in old age. As a young man, Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon. In middle age, he wrote and assembled the Proverbs. In old age, he wrote Ecclesiastes. It's hard to imagine that that 12th chapter of Ecclesiastes, describing old age, was written by someone who had not endured it. Likely, it was written after his repentance for sin, somewhere between 950 and 931 and his death. And how does he finish that book? After a life of great blessing and yet great sin, he finishes with this great statement. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 to 14. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And ultimately, Solomon in those words brings us back to the only one who can undo the judgment of God upon our sin, to David's greater son, to the descendant of Solomon, Jesus Christ. Picture of the Old Testament, the picture of the United Monarchy, is mankind needs a centralized ruler who is righteous, who will reign with justice. And someday, that will come. Because God has made a promise to David, we saw it tonight, that his dynasty will be an eternal dynasty because his greatest son will rule forever.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with Part 6 of An Aerial View of the Old Testament. Tom will have Part 7 for you next time, and we'd love it if you joined us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at one eight seven seven five seven seven word And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed.